Now to growing concerns about you must stay at home. Total cases in the U.S. now top 8.4 million. The new variant of coronavirus is out of control. I hate you, 2020! Well, that was a pile of crap, I know. However, we did see some amazing tech companies emerge from the crisis. And this podcast is me going around the world talking to founders of these companies. And some of these founder stories are absolutely amazing and can't wait to share them with you. So, from San Francisco to Sydney. Welcome back to the 2020 Entrepreneurs Club podcast. I'm still Ben Kenwright. Hope you're still happy to hear about that part. And I'm glad you're still here. Episode four. Thanks so much to everyone that's tuned in so far. Uh, We're quite surprised by the reach, so this is good. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep visiting amazing entrepreneurs around the world. And today, we're going to take our first trip over to the US of A. And where else to start our tech startup podcast than Silicon Valley? As you can imagine, there has been a heap of cool tech brands emerging from Silicon Valley in 2020, as there usually is, to be fair. And today we are meeting a brand by the name of Syncterra. And Syncterra, a fintech company around empowering the new wave of fintech startups out there through a fair banking system. And our guest today is going to tell us loads about it in a second. Our guest today being uh, Mr. Peter Hazelhurst. Now, if you're in Silicon Valley, To be honest, Peter probably won't need much of an introduction. Um, To give you a slight preview of Peter's background, he's got a long, distinguished CV in Silicon Valley and beyond. Over the past two decades, starting out life running products in companies such as Nokia, I think we've all heard of. Uh, Along the way, he's ran products at Google Wallet. He's owned a wine company. He's done more things than I have time to list right now. And most recently, he headed up uber money uh so he knows a thing or two about tech and startups and he's going to tell us who in a second thanks so much for tuning in welcome back to the 2020 entrepreneurs club podcast and without further ado introducing peter hazelhurst at syncterra so mr peter hazelhurst welcome hi nice to meet you ben nice to meet you whereabouts in the world are you uh, I'm not on Hoth, uh, which is my Zoom background. I am actually in sunny Silicon Valley, where it is like spectacularly great. Um, and you know, it's March first, so it's it's not summer, it's not spring. I don't know what we are, but it's kind of a weird but great time to be building. Yes, absolutely. It's quite a nice climate at San Francisco, especially this time of year. But it doesn't really seem to get much hotter than uh, like mid twenties, which is now just going to confuse different listeners on the opposing sides of the pond because <laughs> that's Celsius. But anyway, welcome yeah. to the 2020 Entrepreneurs Club podcast. Thanks. You are indeed a 2020 entrepreneur with Sincera, but there's quite a bit more to the story here, Peter. So it'd be great to start off by uh, telling us uh, a bit about yourself and, and your background. Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, look, I guess I am an early entrepreneur or something. Uh, so I first came to Silicon Valley in 1991 when I was 19 years old. I uh, went to a developer conference uh, while I was in my gap year from high school to university. Um, a gap year would resonate with your UK audience and would be completely like, what the hell are they talking about in America? But anyway, it's the year that most Australians uh, tend to do a, a bit of work and then spend two or three months in Europe hanging out and drinking beer, basically. But uh, during this time, I actually taught myself to code, came to a developer conference when Silicon Valley was all suits and ties. Um, which was kind of weird. And then the following year, I also came to the same developer conference and it was in summer of 92. And 
one of those weird things where I got a bunch of job offers and ended up quitting law school, which I was in my first year of, and uh, jumped on a plane as a 20-year-old and moved to, of all places, Wilmington, North Carolina, where we started a new startup called Phoenix. Not a very cunning name, but back then we didn't have things like product marketing or sales and things like that. And uh, we built a core banking system from scratch, one of the first ones on Windows. And that was really uh, one of these things where you're so young, you don't know what you shouldn't do. And therefore we went and built it anyway. Like nowadays I hear about people saying they want to go build a core banking system. I'm like, you're insane. Don't do it. It's impossible. Never do it again. And there's been very, very few people that have done this. When we started the company, it was quite, quite ironic. We wanted to get a conference room table and couldn't, you know, we were too cheap. We couldn't afford it. But there was literally like this old IBM 5150 hard drive that was sitting outside in it next to a dumpster. And I don't know if you realize how big these things are, but they're about six foot tall, four feet wide, and they have these giant discs. The platter itself was probably three feet wide. And it had two platters, so it was a 10 megabyte hard drive, which is like huge. Um, but if you turned it on its side, it formed the base of a table, and we had a piece of glass made over the top of it. And that was sort of the ultimate irony of like building a new banking system where the 10 megabyte hard drive was your conference room table. And we thought we were like, doing something amazing. So at the time, you know, modern banking systems then was like Ultradata from 1977 and Florida Software from 1969 and so forth. And here we were, it's 1993. That's cool. Let's like kill these 15, 20-year-old systems. Fast forward to 2021, the code that I wrote back then in 93 still runs. And, and even more weirdly, Ultradata and Florida Software still run too. So the, the crazy thing about Banking um, is just like longevity and software never dies. It's weird. And the teams all stay there. It's pretty interesting. So many of the folks that uh, I hired and that we worked with still work at Phoenix. It's now part of Finastra, which is sort of a vertically integrated financial services company. But Fiserv, Jack Henry, FIS, you name it, all of these things live 40 years. I mean, it's like, it's insane. Um, so anyway, so that was my first startup. We were super lucky. If things worked out, we ended up going public in 96. Then I did a pure.com, zero to 100 employees, zero to 180 employees back to zero again in 19 months, which was, you know, everyone needed to do a .com was sort of a rite of passage or something. Then I did a supply chain company in DC, which was a, a sort of a zero, money in, money out. Everyone sort of made out okay. Then I did a really fun mobile email company based in Pittsburgh called Eisel, which we sold to Nokia. And then inside Nokia, we had just an absolutely spectacularly fun time building out mobile email for consumers. And this is in a period of time when people didn't even know you could do email on your phone. So it was like, it was the dark ages. It was 2002, 2003. And in the US, no one was texting yet. So texting became a thing with Kelly Clarkson and American Idol. So, and literally it was the first time someone told you you could do a short code and people were like, what's a short code? And, and all of that sort of stuff. So it was a, it was a very interesting time to understand technology. Uh, capitalized on that, moved to Silicon Valley in 2004 and worked, uh, started leading engineering at a company called Yodley, which pioneered two sorts of vectors, the concept of financial APIs and building products in tech before it was called FinTech that have then sort of been taken over by the likes of Plaid and others. And then our customer base was all the big retail banks. So we had this unique business model very early on, which was sell almost a last leader product to the big banks like P of A and Chase and Wells and so forth, 
get customer growth that way and then work with developers and fintechs to build out third-party add-ons to the platform and so forth. And then you saw the likes of Mint.com and others take our APIs and build some really interesting new personal finance tools and build pay and funds transfer and so forth. Did that for a while, then went big company for the first time, went to work, for, well, so Nokia was a big company. But then I went to work for Google and worked on Google Wallet and we launched uh, Tap and Pay and all of those sorts of things, which was very, very early in the renaissance of using your mobile phone as a banking device. Did that for a couple of years, then detox for a while, uh, went and worked as COO for a short stint at Postmates. That was insane. We grew the business 10% a week for six months, which was like, it's kind of like you just, with human logistics, it's quite crazy. What else? Uh, then I did my own startup, Angel Scholars, which was building a scholarship system platform for uh, high schoolers. That was uh, a regrettable fail, but you know the whole thing about being an entrepreneur is you got to keep going at that and maybe something will land. Then I did my most fun company, which was The Perfect Sit, which was a wine startup, which was like super, super fun. Think of uh, a subscription once a month, you know, four bottles of wine on a theme. One week, one month it'll be Australian wine, one month it'll be rosés and so forth. And then it was a multi-level marketing program where effectively women would sell to women on a Thursday night, eight to 10 women sitting around a table or whatever, trying out some wine, selling to each other. Ridiculously fun. Best job ever. Then I went to work at Uber. Uh, and for the last couple of years, I've run payments and risk and everything at Uber, which was big company again. Massive team, uh, lots of really interesting things, culminating in building out Uber Money, which was Uber's effectively a driver bank, almost like a credit union that was focused on helping drivers be successful in their financial lives. And then I took a break. Um, COVID was kind of crazy, made a huge difference to Uber's business. And then we started Sinkterra. Uh, theoretically, it started in March, April timeframe of 2020. I started to get involved late July, early August, and came on board full-time as CEO in September. And since then, we've been on a sort of crazy journey. We did fundraising and launched a very successful seed round of 12.4 million. And now the team is growing. Today, we added five new people to the team. It's super exciting, two of whom are on this call, which is great. Yes, hi guys. That was it, 20, I don't even know, 27 years of Nerdville in different ways and shapes and forms. And now I'm sort of a closet nerd. Like I enjoy like forcing engineers to talk to me about how their code's working and debugging SQL queries with them. It's quite fun. Well, I very much enjoyed that uh, Nerdville introduction, I must say. And I would say you probably qualified to uh, launch a new startup in 2020, Peter. Um, so rewinding back, because we always like to, to kind of the human story of getting this business off the ground in 2020. So the original premise is there from around March. This is COVID land, right? And then you joined the business a few months later to kind of spearhead it. Talk us through those early stages, how Sinkterra as a concept was formed and was it formed in spite of COVID or because of COVID? And, and yeah, sure, sure, sure. So um, the, the incubation of the idea of um, Sinkterra actually was done by a company or a, a, a venture incubator uh, in Canada called Diagram. And they actually have a pretty interesting operating model where they have a bunch of analysts and, and professionals that come up with a, a concept or an idea or a thesis. And then they'll go test that thesis by either trying to find a customer or trying to aggregate a couple of entrepreneurs, take the idea and 
and test it out with a seed investment or a pre-seed investment. And that's kind of what happened with Sinkterra, which was an, an observation about the marketplace that there was an imbalance between supply and demand. And in this case, the demand is the dozens of fintechs that are getting funded every week um, versus the number of sponsor banks or community banks that can work with the fintechs to become uh, a product that goes to market. Um, not the least of which is five or six uh, big brands in the UK, such as Monzo and Revolut and others, crossing, crossing the channel and saying, we want to launch in the US. And unlike Europe, where there's this regime called e-money, where uh, a, a fintech can actually relatively easily become bank-like and in, be part of the, the monetary system, in the US, you have to have a sponsor bank or become a bank in order to move money in the ecosystem. So this imbalance was identified. They tested the theory. Um, they had a relationship with our first uh, customer, Coastal Community Bank up in Seattle. And the initial design and theory of the incubation was, let's build a compliance platform for community banks. So when I was introduced to the concept through this amazing recruiter, John Pomerantz at True, and sort of sidebar, Silicon Valley in general, and in particular fintech, is completely relationship-driven. And so if you want to be successful in it, actually having your finger on the pulse of the recruiters that have the best networks of relationships becomes really valuable. So John is sort of the fintech horse whisperer and was a um, person, he, he reached out to me and I was like, John, I'm, I'm taking a break, man. I'm not going, going back to work. He's like, but, but, but you got to meet these people, they're really interesting. I'm like, nah. So I did and foolishly agreed to, to meet with them despite my best intentions. And I think, you know, ironically, as we talk about like COVID's ups and downs, one of the interesting dynamics about it is in the grand scheme of sort of between work types of dynamics, because there's so much constraint on things you would want to do normally when you were taking a break, like going and sitting on a beach or chilling out or just decompressing. It actually made more sense to sort of skip that three to six months normal break you would have between starting one thing or so on. And that led me to having some great chats with Paul Demeray, whose overall structure a corporation called Power Corporation owns Diagram or is a significant shareholder in Diagram. So anyway, long-winded way of saying Diagram came up with the idea. Their operating model was if the idea feels like it has legs, recruit co-founders to come and take over the idea and bring it to market. And, um, and somewhat challengingly, because of COVID, we, we hadn't really even met each other before. So it was a really interesting assemblage process. And we can talk about that. But overall, it was just a, a really interesting incubation to ideation to let's put money to work kickoff process. It wasn't me coming up with this cool idea and saying, hey, let's go do it. I actually, my input on this would be, I thought the idea was quite narrow that they had proposed and I proposed expanding it, which is ultimately where we went with Sinkterra. And I think is being validated by the marketplace. So there's lots of people excited about what we're doing. Okay, so two things I want to ask on that front. Firstly, when you foolishly went, well, foolishly and inverted commas, went to this meeting, did you know that you would probably come out of there with some kind of new business on the cards? Mm, uh, I don't know. I, I think I've variously tried not to stay in fintech um, because I, I worry about being typecast. And uh, there's sort of two schools of thought on this. One is to be sort of a generalist 
I like building teams and I don't really care what the technology or the domain is. And the other is I kind of understand the space and I have a really good network effect of relationships and, and skills. And so I can capitalize that and go further, which is why the wine startup was so great. Just like, of course. Completely to- different. And, and, you know, to be fair, there's an aspect of tasting wine, which is something that some of my friends and family will enjoy. Um, but to be fair, on the flip side, tasting 60 Chardonnays in two hours isn't actually that much fun. So pluses and minuses. But anyway, so going into a fintech conversation is usually a binary thing for me. It's either I meet the founders and they're awesome and I want to help them and, and do something, or I'm like, seen that idea. There's like no chance. You're never going to make it work. And what's interesting and fun about Sintera is we sort of sit in between those two parts of the marketplace where you have incredibly passionate entrepreneurs that are saying, I have this cool idea. It's going to be fantastic. And relatively risk averse in general community banks that are saying, that's a cool idea, but you know, it would be really nice if you remember to do KYC of your users, because otherwise we're going to have bad people in the ecosystem. And, and sitting in the middle is really fun because we help bridge that gap. So let's go back to the assembly of the founding team there, because that is quite fascinating. One part of the podcast that I found really fascinating on the interviewer side is incubators. Uh, you've got several incubators operating in the UK and, and well, across Europe and the US as well, where all of the founders aren't founders when they enter the incubator. None of them even know each other. And quite often, there's not even a business on the table. And for someone like me who instinctively just plucked someone from my network and said, hey, should we do this? And then we put our notes together and we created a business. It was really, really fascinating. Uh, and this is a, a different take on it altogether. So the concept exists before the founding team. And then in a way, you're recruited to that. And you touched on it already, the assembly of it. So tell us more about that. Well, it's kind of interesting. So the, the, the first co-founder, uh, Dominic, he actually was, I don't actually honestly know how he got connected to Diagram in the first place, but they had some sort of existing relationship. And he was the product person that started to flesh out the idea. Chris Hansen, um, who's our CTO, um, was the tech leader and at the time um, was working for as an advisor to Portage, which was an LP in Diagram. And so he was sort of saying, technically, could we do this? Could we build it? And his background was in domain, which was he was the CTO at Coho Bank. Think of Coho as Monzo for Canada or Chime for Canada, if you will. So he had domain experience. And then I, so I was the outsider. So those, those two guys knew each other a little bit. Um, and had worked together at some consulting firm before. So they had some history in the past. And then as I started to get to know them, it, it was quite interesting uh, to realize I'd actually met Chris before, two years earlier. So one of the things that I'm really passionate about is prison reform. And so I spend pre-COVID, every six months or so, I would go to a place called Pelican Bay, which is a very secure supermax prison at the top of California, where the leaders of all of the most prominent gangs uh, incarcerated. And we would run a program called Defy, or now named Hustle 2.0, designed to help our friends in prison move away from needing to have income and generate value through illegal means to actually, what would they do when they leave prison? And a friend of mine, Tom Williams, who is like a longtime investor and advisor and, and buddy, brought together a whole bunch of folks, in particular Canadian folks, because he's from Canada. And Chris was actually on that trip. And so one of the 
the unique sort of bonding things that most founding teams don't do is go to solitary confinement in a supermax prison wearing body armor. But we did. And so we crossed all possible trust dynamics when, you know, you've got to make sure you wear the right colored clothes because you don't want to look like an inmate in, in the event of a lockdown. And so that was quite interesting. Uh, that being said, I was determined to make sure we actually met each other at least once because it just felt extraordinarily weird that you would actually aggregate a team together and never actually physically be in the room together ever. So Chris was very magnanimous and agreed to come to Boulder where Dominic and I, Dominic's based in Chicago, I was in San Francisco. And we spent three days socially distanced in a WeWork, getting to know each other. We went to dinner once, twice had breakfast, all the sort of normal things that humans do, but with masks on and all the rest of it, to get to know each other. And that was like a really interesting connection point. And why it was so important or difficult is, unfortunately, on the back end of that, that meant that Chris was then agreeing to spend 14 days locked in a hotel room when he returned to Canada, so he couldn't see his family. But he was cool and he stepped up to do that. And I think that was really critical to us to get started. You should have seen your team's face there when they realised the first company offsite might be in that supermax prison in California. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's total opt-in, and I've taken lots of uh, folks that I've worked with in the past there. It's like one of the most extraordinary, life-changing-y types of things you can do to meet these amazing men um, who are among my best friends, uh, three of whom uh, who were previously LWOP, Life Without Parole, subject to uh, re Changes in laws in California that change how third strike is considered have now been able to get out on parole. Um, so, and they've met my kids, they've met my family, we go to dinner. These guys are great. And yes, they've done some really horrible things in the past, but that's not who they are. And so I'm really proud to have them as my friends. Well, that's amazing. My, my hat certainly goes off to you there. And it, it's not something I anticipated talking about today, but on that, you know, one big part of rehabilitation of offenders is having good people around them to lead them uh, down a positive route as opposed to being led, you know, down a negative one. Do you think there's room for ex-offenders in the Valley? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I think that some of the really progressive changes that have happened in California in particular include things like you can't actually ask if you've been in prison as part of the interviewing process. You can ask it at the end. You can say, hey, you're doing, we're doing a role that is related to money. We're going to have to do a background check on you. But you can't use it to discriminate up front, which I think is really opening a lot of opportunity for folks and I think is good. And so what we do is we actually help our colleagues that are up in prison to get out in front of that and actually be transparent at the beginning because it's actually detrimental if you wait until the end because it sort of feels like a reveal. But yeah, bringing people into tech is really great. And I think there's lots of opportunities there. I think the thing that's hard about it, particularly about Silicon Valley, is that it's so extraordinarily expensive to live here. It's very, very challenging to, to find a role, which is your first job out of prison, that makes it viable to sort of live here. And that's a, its own indictment of Silicon Valley and the cost of living and all of that sort of thing. But yes, I'm, I'm a big proponent of it. And that's amazing. Um, and on the cost of living in, in San Francisco, it's known as one of the most expensive places to live in, in North America, uh, if not the world. How do you think COVID will change that? You know, we're seeing an exodus of 
people from all cities. We're seeing companies like Spotify have a working from anywhere uh, policy moving forward. And you are you you're going to have one of the best vantage um, points in the world for this. What, what do you foresee happening over the next few years? Look, I think I think companies are going to change their philosophy around what it means to be together and and what it means to connect and what's required versus what's nice. One of the things I've been talking about with our team is this concept that we will likely get office space in the form of team conference rooms, but I'm very, very reluctant to get anyone a desk. It just feels an anachronism. Like, why do you need to come to work to have a desk? And I was reflecting on this, and there was a story on NPR a couple of nights ago talking about how this transition happened. And back in the old days when I were a lad, and you were dialing up over like a 26K or a 33.6K connection to the internet, you stayed at work because it just sucked being at home. Like you'd actually schedule time to download your emails and then work offline and all this little nonsense. But now it's like where you are is somewhat irrelevant. However, I think the creative process is one that gets dramatically uplifted by physical in-the-room whiteboarding and, and brainstorming and so forth. And Zoom doesn't fix that. So I'm convinced that this sort of hybrid idea of collaboration time versus think time will be something that many companies evolve to. And even all the remote first or remote only types of companies, I believe will still end up finding collaboration zones or places where people can aggregate because it just sponsors more ideas. And the serendipity of the micro kitchen at Google as an outsider, before I went to Google, I was all like, oh, that's bullshit. There's no way that thing really works. It's just a, it's just a code word for having an espresso machine that's manned and, and operated and that you can get, you know, take a break from work. But I firsthand had the random thing where I've been standing in line waiting for a coffee and I hear a conversation that a couple of Googlers were having and I'm like, I don't know who you are, but I know what you're working on. I think I know how to help you with what you're doing. Let's just go jump in a room and talk about it. And that serendipity is something special about the community that you can have in a shared space. And I think furthermore, there's a layer of that that happens in Silicon Valley that's hard to underestimate. And post COVID, when we're more comfortably sitting outside of Starbucks or a blue bottle or whatever, the latest fancy coffee company is of, of the Valley today, that serendipity will come back too. I personally experienced uh, sitting on University Avenue in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto and somebody randomly came up and said, hey, could you help me with my project? And I'm like, sure, what are you working on? And they'll sit down and you just have a cool discussion and suddenly you realize, yeah, this is really fun, something I could do together. I don't think that's ever going to go away after COVID. Well, I hope it doesn't go away. It'd be sad if it did, you know, but I, you, you've hit the nail on the head when it's the necessity of it. Is it necessary to be in the office all of the time? Is it necessary to have your desk only in the office and to not have a desk at home? And as long as companies realise that there always is a need for collaborative environments, just collaborative time, and just enabling people to get out the house and, and walk down the streets to have those moments of serendipity, then I think we're going to be okay and I think society will improve. It's interesting, the kind of accidental social experiment that we had last year with everyone shifting to working at home, big companies suddenly realised that people worked at home very effectively and the staff were saying, we love this, don't send us back. But then a few months in, staff started to say, actually, no, we'd like to come back, we just miss humans and 
And um, it's things that you certainly can't replace over Zoom. You're never going to accidentally hear someone's Zoom conversation unless it's the person that lives in your house. <laughs> so therefore, well, you... uh, I, I hope so, but um, I think there's been plenty of documented accidentally hearing other things on people's Zoom. Well, there's that. They yeah. haven't heard. Yeah, but I, the I don't know. You... bathroom run, et cetera. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think uh, I don't think any interesting tech ideas will come out of those incidents that we've heard of. GPS that can sort of ring fence your bathroom and toilet, so the, the phone instantly disconnects its Wi-Fi while you're in proximity. Yeah, which will be this... great, except for parents whose kids spend most of the time in the bathroom as well. So yeah, anyway, the, this GPS. is why you're uh, as uh, as prolific as you are in Silicon Valley because you come up with ideas on the spot like this, Peter. That was very impressive. <laughs> anyway, I've, I've got to go. I've got to go and design this new app that tracks people in the household. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, touching on well, staying on the whole remote working and trying to make the best of it. Some people are certainly better at it than others, and I think you're doing a pretty good job. You're certainly the first person that's brought part of his team on today so hi guys i have already said hi but i'll say hi again and they're not here to be part of the interview but it's just really nice that you're including them in you know in other conversations that you're having you know like with this guy in england how much of that are you trying to do on a daily basis like how much face time are you trying to get over zoom to replace the fact that you're not getting the face-to-face -face time in the flesh um i think you know I think different parts of our company have different levels of amount of time to be on Zoom. I've always been, I, I don't know, for the last 20 years or so of my career, my, my schedule has been 100% collaboration slash meeting room time. And the same as here. Uh, the only difference is I don't have a room where people can jump in and we can use a whiteboard. So I'm on Zoom nine hours, 10 hours a day with all different sorts of things. So we start every day the same, which is really fun, and I hope we'll be able to keep doing this forever. But we're going to have diminishing probabilities of it as we add more people. So adding five people today was kind of fun. Um, but what we start the day every day at 8.30 is a little bit of top of mind for me, and it's the whole company, everybody. It's like an all hands. And then each person goes around and says, what do I do yesterday? What am I doing today? And every now and then someone will jump in and say, oh, I can help you with that. And that sort of sets the tone that we're all in it together, we're all sharing. At some point, that'll splinter off and engineering will be too big and we can't hear from every engineer every day. I hope not. And if that does happen, I'll probably figure out a way that we do them sequentially so I can join all of them because I'm like super curious and I want to be part of everything. But even that will fade away at some point. I don't know. It's as much as I can. I, my job is on top of email and, and messaging and story and communication and with the team as much as I can be. And as little as possible be a blocker to progress. And that, and as we go through each phase, the, the blockerness becomes a different problem. At the beginning, it was, who do we hire? And there was recruiting and stuff like that. Right now, we're in a fun place where there's too many customers, which is kind of the thing you never want to say out loud, but we have too many customers. And so Lydia joined us to lead sales. I have an amazing person starting next week to, to lead business development. Kyle joined us to join product marketing. Shit. Uh, Chet joined us to do sales operations and execution. And my hope is that all these things become force multipliers that make us be more effective and grow faster and recognize the fact that like some of the fintechs, I feel really, really bad, but I literally haven't had enough time to even just email them back and say, hey, we still love you. We're ready. Let's, let's go to the next step. So yeah, 
long answer to say Zoom all the time. I run inbox zero. And yeah, I guess, was that a good answer? That was an absolutely great answer. And I hope more CEOs out there did the same thing. I'll certainly be taking uh, a page out of that book as we grow the team. Um, so the team, Sinkatera, it is the reason you are here, is the 2020 entrepreneurship story. Um, we've got a few million bucks in the bank. What's next? What are we spending it on? Build, 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 build. Um, it was funny when, um, when we were raising the seed round, one of the investors said, look, and, and sent a term sheet, here's your Series A. And I'm like, reject it, take it back. And they were like, but it's 12 million bucks. I'm like, sure, but we're two months old. So it's a seed round. And they're like, oh, okay. Why do we need 12 million? I'm like, because we have all this stuff to build. I need to hire all these people and we're all going to get them on board. And theoretically, the 12 million bucks gets us to 90 people by February and then we'd blow up and run out of money which would be bad. So, you know, founder's job, CEO's job is always to keep fundraising. So that's my side gig, my side hustle, keep, keep the investors happy uh, or excited or creating a little bit of FOMO, uh, which doesn't hurt. But yeah, so I'll follow a playbook that we, we did at Uber quite successfully, which was launch as quickly as possible in as many markets as possible with tech stack and then progressively build out the capabilities internally under the covers. So do a lot of partnering, get to market, and then continue to evolve the product roadmap as we go. But, you know, with relative clarity, I could tell you everything we need to build for the next 24 months. And if we had a team of 100 engineers all dialed in and ready to go right now, they would have lots of work to do. So recruiting, growing, building, cadences of launches, ideally monthly, big roll-ups every quarter, chats with folks like you, Every week, ideally, to create. I could do that. Well, um, you, you probably get bored with my bullshit after like one or two of these versions. But over time, we can expand. And apologies to your audience. I'm Australian. I can't help it. I speak. Oh, don't worry. I'm married to someone. vernacular. I'm from London. It's, uh, this podcast has been quite potty mouth, so it's all good. Okay. Okay, so you're, uh, this, it, it's an exciting time for entrepreneurship in, in general. And the question I wanted to ask you, You've been there and weathered storms with highly successful uh, Silicon Valley companies throughout the last global financial crisis. You also joined one of the biggest success stories of the last financial crisis in Uber. Now, recovery being um, a kind of hot topic at the moment, what kind of advice would you give to businesses that have weathered the storms or those that are launching now and in terms of moving forwards as the markets start to recover, how can we build good technologies and capitalize on opportunities that potentially may lay in front of us over the next 12, 24, 36 months? Look, I would say that the, the playbook of crisis has almost consistently yielded bunches of really interesting new ideas and companies because um, entrepreneurs are all are always thinking about new things. And my encouragement to all of them is seek funding, go build. Um, and don't, don't think, oh, I wonder if the market will ever recover. The market's recovering, it's happening. Um, and the, the great thing about the world is its sense of resilience and the plowing through these sort of really ridiculously unpleasant times. But we are gonna to get to the other side of this. Maybe it's the end of summer, California time, before most of the US is vaccinated. 
uh, and the rest of the world by the end of the year, I hope. But we're going to get to the other side of this and great ideas will always be successful when they're made available to folks. And so the great thing about the startup culture, Silicon Valley in general, and investors and VCs at large, is they tend to, in some ways, also invest counter-cyclically. And we saw this at Yodley in 2008, where everyone was like, the financial crisis, the world's coming to an end, everything's really bad. Turns out many of the best fintech type of companies got started around that time because they capitalized on a down momentum of product work that would go to market and just focused inwardly and built and then shipped six months, 12 months later. And you saw the likes of, and not quite in that exact timeline, but you saw the likes of Uber, Airbnb and others being fostered in that generational skip change. And I'm super bullish on the many great new ideas that we see in fintech in, from my purview, but just in general, there's so much cool stuff. Who just thought blabbing on the phone randomly in front of a whole bunch of other people would be really exciting for others. And God help me, Clubhouse. It's, it's spectacular. You could just like go into the matrix on that thing and never come out again. It's going to be like, I think they're going to have to have like limits like we did with when I was hardcore addicted to World of Warcraft, where the game kicked you off after six hours of continuous play because you're just like, oh my God, I just, I just want to learn about something new. Oh, oh, wow, there's someone talking about the NSA. I'm going to join that clubhouse room. And, and then you, you're gone. So I don't know. There's so much fun stuff happening. I encourage my fellow entrepreneurs, figure out what's unique and special about what you're doing. I promise you there's money to chase your idea. Go, go build something awesome. Yeah, there's an insane amount of investor capital out there. I talked to, in fact, most of the less experienced entrepreneurs that we've had on the podcast have consistently said that it's been easier to raise money than they thought. So, you know, amen to that and to everyone listening out there. Uh, there's lots of money to be had if you've got an idea. Go and ask people for money because people are looking to invest money in things, uh, well, they're looking to invest money in technology, especially because there's lots of other industries that they used to invest in that they kind of can't anymore. Um, now, second part I wanted to ask you, you are the monetization king. You're clearly the guy that knows how to make money. Tell us, how do we do that? Uh, I, I'm not sure I can take that mantle. I think there have been plenty of other folks that are, are much more effective building insanely valuable and profitable companies. I guess my, my observation would be, if you're really passionate and believe in something that you're doing, the, the money will flow afterwards. And building great products is always the first priority. Turning it in and becoming profitable thereafter is great. If you can do both at the same time, super awesome. But you know, don't go build something that you don't personally want to use, feel, or experience because you'll never have that unique personal touch or feedback that you can then say, oh, the insight is I would have paid for that. That's the only feedback I'd give you. I think it's the magic of Silicon Valley and any other tech startup hub out there that a lot of these companies are created by people that don't really care about money. I mean, the most famous case is obviously Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, but, you know, the, the monetization wasn't always the key driver. They just did something really, really well because they were passionate, built amazing products, and, and then the money was a byproduct of that. So we, we've touched on what's next for Sinteri, looking to build, build, build. Where is Sinteri now in terms of the MVP and the go-to-market? Am I able to sign up to the platform now? And, and Yeah. 
What does that look like? Who is, uh, I, I understand the concept, I get it, but if I'm a, a fintech disruptor now that wants to launch in North America, am I coming to Sinterra to help me facilitate that? And, and if so, what does that kind of customer experience look like? Very much so. So we're a two-sided marketplace. So we have customers, which are the banks, uh, the community banks that say, I'd like to be part of the fintech economy. And we're completely open for business for them, helping them get started recognizing that they probably have a three to six month journey to get approval from their boards and to launch their first fintechs and so forth. And then on the fintech side, uh, very much so, we're actively working with 30, 40, 50 fintechs as we speak to take their cool ideas, match them up to a bank and get them into the marketplace. So what does it look like? Um, we're still a little bit early, so we're still doing the NDA thing. Hopefully we turn that thing off soon, but basically, the easiest inbound is to hit the contact us page on the website, which is kind of lame, but uh, it, it's, it's spectacularly been working pretty well. And then Lydia, who's sort of auditing this call, she actually actually has to start thinking about outbound demand creation at some point. Right now, we're, it's all inbound, so it's, it's, it's kind of nice. But yeah, we would love to talk to anybody that's got a cool idea in fintech and help them find a bank and get them to go to market. I think realistically, most of the fintechs we're talking to are somewhat already in their journey and have picked partners and we're working with them too. But, you know, we're talking to some really great entrepreneurs that are coming up with new ideas that are just getting funded as we speak and bringing them to market over the next two, three, six months is what we're all about. Well, I didn't actually realize the difference in the US compared to the UK and Europe when it comes to being able to get a fintech grant to market. And we actually had an episode uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, for a guy within the UK staffing industry who managed to get a fintech to market in less than six months with no previous experience. Obviously, the, the same red tape doesn't exist. Uh, and actually, fintech has been the most uh, common type of guest on, on this podcast. Uh, so, yes, it's certainly in the right place. I, I'm sure I'll be coming across more entrepreneurs out there who are certainly... Uh, we'd certainly be interested in Sinterra, but more so it's about inspiring the next wave of people that are sitting on an idea that could turn into the next Revolut or Monzo or comparable brands across the ponds. But just think, I don't know how to do it. I just don't know how to do this. I'm not a fintech person. I'm not financial yep. I don't have financial services. And I think this is another thing that's come out of 2020. <laughs> Life's too short. I had a guy on a couple of weeks ago that was like, the reason I started this is because I sat in my house for a year and realized that life was a bit short to sit at home doing nothing. So, so I built a tech company. Got more of that. 100% yeah. more of that. And if we can do nothing else but make it possible for the, the most early stage, least funded startup to find a bank partner, we will have won. Right now, the challenge, because there's not enough banks, the banks are cherry picking and saying, I'm only going to take the next Sequoia funded with $25 million of cash because they want that 25 million, 20 million spent on CAC to onboard new customers. And all the cool ideas that are just percolating in somebody's garage or at YC are struggling to find a bank partner to bank them to go to market. Our job is to democratize that, bring way more banks onto market so that the supply demand imbalance is uh, equalized. And that uh, we believe will mean the coolest new ideas come to market. I'd love to discover the next Shopify. That would be fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing concept. And again, I mean, I'm already, my entrepreneurial spidey sense is tingling. I'm like, uh, I've got to think of, uh, I've got to think of an idea and come back to Peter on this. 
but I'm a bit preoccupied by the tech startup that I already did last year and this podcast. So you're going to have to wait for that conversation, Peter. So before we sign off, it's been amazing. I could pick your brain for hours, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully do this again uh, someday soon. Uh, but before we sign off, what has been, uh, you've built businesses throughout, well, 9-11, you've built businesses throughout the last financial crisis. You've jumped in headfirst into North America where, when you were young and you, you've had a very interesting career today. This would definitely be the first time you've built a business in a, in a global pandemic, though. What would you say were the biggest challenges compared to yesteryear? And on the flip side, the biggest silver linings that you've had growing this team over the last 12 months? Maybe I'll just flip it and say great teams can build great things. And if you focus on that and having a North Star of where you want to be, which is solving some real problem for real customers, all of the challenges of logistics of it sucks to be on Zoom all day and all of that sort of thing, they become irrelevant because you get jazzed about meeting your team every day. You know where the customers are excited and want to build, want the thing that you're building. And what you build actually has meaning and value. Then all those alleged challenges are irrelevant. You just focus on what's going to be great, which is something fun on the other side. Well, amen to that. Peter, that was a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate the backstory and the insight. Sintera sounds like an amazing brand. I mean, I've been researching it for the last week or so before our conversation, uh, but I, I love what you guys are doing. There's more to it than just creating something that's going to generate revenue. You know, you've got a vision of how to really disrupt an industry that needs to be disrupted and it's going to be disrupted for the good. Uh, and thanks for the inspiring words out there. You know, it resonates with me uh, and I'm already a year into uh, my startup, hence the, the gray hairs and, and, and the magazine. Cut it shorter and then the gray hairs. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing that, but haircuts and, and COVID lockdowns aren't really... Self-serve, uh, I did this myself. That's quite impressive. Is there anything you can't do, Peter? <laughs> uh, what else? <laughs> anyway, I'll shut up now. Thank you, Peter. Great yeah. talking to you, Ben. Uh, and yeah, I hope this inspires the would-be entrepreneurs out there and the ones already growing. So thank you so much. And thank you to Peter's team. Next time, we will talk more to you guys as well. Awesome. Catch you later, Ben. Take care. Bye. Well, what a legend. Thanks so much to Peter. And uh, thanks so much to his team as well. You couldn't really hear or see them, but uh, they, were, they were great. So they're legends too. Uh, so many takeaways from the episode. I'm definitely going to listen to it back a few times to ensure I don't miss any of them golden nuggets of wisdom. Sinterra, very cool brand. Uh, Peter and his team are highly experienced, but the brand itself and the team are the epitome of 2020 entrepreneurship. Challenging the status quo, disrupting stuff. And I love that this is a recurring theme on the podcast. People coming up with a concept to fix something that could be better, isn't necessarily broken, just could be better. Putting a company together in the middle of a lockdown and just doing it. So I love the screw it, let's do it attitude. And there's loads of other takeaways. I love everything that Peter does as a business person, uh, but I especially love what him and his team are putting together now. Join us. This time, next week, for another 2020 Entrepreneur. Now is the time for the ladies. We've had four amazing guests so far, but you may have noticed they are all blokes. So next up, we have our ladies. We've had an excellent response from female tech entrepreneurs out there. So I promise we'll be showcasing more of those. Thank you so much to everyone who's tuned in so far. An interesting stat. Our second joint biggest listenership has been in Germany so UK number one as well 
slightly predictable. US in number two, joint with Germany. So first of all, to all of our German listeners, I'd like to say Dankeschön. But we don't have any German guests on the podcast. So if you're a 2020 tech entrepreneur out there or you know anyone, please reach out to me on LinkedIn, Ben Kenwright. You can't miss me. And get on the podcast. We need to hear from German tech entrepreneurs right now. To the rest of you, thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear so far, do rate us, do subscribe to wherever you get your podcast, and we shall see you this time next week for another 2020 Entrepreneurs Club podcast. Bye.